Hey, today you're going to meet Glenn Gallich, who is the CEO of the Stepsky Foundation. You are going to hear about the amazing change making that he is leading based out of their offices in San Francisco. Stick around. You're listening to The Playful Podcast with Christine Mitchie. Let's jump right in. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Playful Podcast. Today's guest is Glenn Gallich who is the CEO of the Stupski Foundation, which is based up in San Francisco, doing work in both Northern California, the Bay Area broadly, and in Hawaii. And we'll have him tell us a little bit about why that's those two special places. And, uh, and Glenn is a philanthropic leader, a thought leader. He's both engaged in philanthropy and observing and commenting on it. And that's how we got to know each other. I've been really a fan of watching and reading some of Glenn's perspectives about how philanthropy is and maybe is not changing and could change more and get better. Welcome, Glenn. Oh, thank you. This is a real honor. Thank Thanks you for so reaching much. out. You bet. <laughs> Absolutely. Good old LinkedIn. Yeah, right? it's been working out. Awesome. I'd love you to tell us a little bit about the foundation, but before that, I want to ask mm -hmm. you something related, unrelated, which is who is the most playful person? I should have come ready for that because I've listened to all your podcasts and I've heard people surprised and not surprised when you've asked it. And I was listening to one of the prior ones and their kids were mentioned. And I think both of my kids are certainly the most playful people I've seen. That said, I will add not a particular person, but there was a time when I used to lead a lot of donor travel. Uh, we take people that are interested in philanthropy to other countries. And at times there would be moments where they would take the opportunity to play European football or mm -hmm. soccer uh, with the kids. Mm -hmm. And those moments were always fantastic. The kids were always really playful despite the conditions that wherever we would be in some of the toughest places in the world. And uh, there was always that great connection. Yeah. The kids could make anyone playful. And so that yeah. was always a great experience when that happened. Great point. In fact, I think that exact example kids and football, soccer have been mentioned by other folks that I've talked to. Yeah. We know that's like the world's game. Yeah. <laughs> so not surprising that it could provide a through line, especially as strangers, foreigners are coming mm -hmm. into a community. And now I'm just thinking like probably even Jane Goodall and some of the other folks that study play in mammals, the, the activation of a toy between parties can create that playfulness. Hey, while we're talking about international, you've done a lot of work there. I'm wondering, have you found play to be a bridge builder or healer in any overt way when you think back about your time over the years working in international philanthropy? Absolutely. And you, there's a common model that you see everywhere in the world, and it tends to be soccer, actually. Not that I'm neutral on that <laughs> as a sport, but you tend to see programs that bring kids and adults together, but mostly kids into leadership programs and otherwise where soccer's at the core of it. I do believe very strongly that leadership 
is really best expressed at times through sports. I am really addicted to American football and I'm always listening to sports radio, not with an ear necessarily for the purposes of just listening to my team, which I do want to hear about, but you hear things all the time from sports figures, the good ones, and even the managers and coaches and otherwise related to leadership. And it all comes down to ultimately, how do you play the game? Mm, how do yeah. you play the game? Well, in a real sense, not just in a figurative sense that you might say, if you're working in a foundation and how do you play that game? Well, but how do you play the game on the field and the kind of leadership necessary to do it at the level that some of these players do it. And even on the field in a random place somewhere in the world. So those programs, I think, are really life-changing and transformative. Yeah. I was in places where we were within two or three years of a conflict ending, a violent conflict. And you would be in places where either kids had lost their parents in the conflict or were swept up in as child soldiers. Mm -hmm. And these sports programs were ways to really de-escalate conflict between kids, mm -hmm. between ethnicities at times, between villages. Between neighbors yeah, and opportunities to lead, which in many of these countries, the goal was to create democratic leaders yeah, who could hear perspectives and negotiate and compromise and coordinate. And it was all happening on the sports field with a goal toward eventually a government. Yeah. Well, I think it's powerful stuff. Yeah. yeah. A, a bunch of things are going through my mind. I wonder if that was some of the popularity of Ted Lasso coming out during what turned out to be really the middle of COVID, right? And I think we were all looking for leadership or looking for common ground. And maybe that's what kind of struck the chord with that show. We were watching it actually last night. We're like, they're not really doing much coaching. They're doing lots of ruminating. Yeah. <laughs> lots right. of like life lessons. Yeah. <laughs> maybe why they have a losing season in the current episode or season, right? But I love that. And I was reflecting about Dr. Stuart Brown, who's the play researcher and a reflection in the book that I read recently about how kids today with organized sports, in this case, I'm talking about American kids right. playing organized sports where the grownups have made up the rules. Whereas, oh, and now we can talk about growing up because you guys, we found out, Glenn and I found out on a prep call that we grew up not just in the same town, but within a few blocks of each other, which crazy. We're like, take a left, take a right. Oh my God, that was my house. So, <laughs> when we were growing up, um, yeah. we just were out in the street kind of making up rules to games and having to sort through with each other when someone cheated, right? Mm -hmm. Or someone broke the rule or whatever the case may be and how vital that was. And, you know, and maybe something we kind of keep an eye out for as we, especially as those of us who are older in the workforce now are engaging with young people who grew up with a different experience vis-a-vis -vis rules and creativity and imagination and all that, making sure we're fostering that where we can. Yeah. And I think this is where my age just comes out every five minutes in my household. The rise of quick, fast action social media platforms like TikTok, mm -hmm. there can be a lot of play involved in social media and there can also be a lot of not so great stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's at the center of how young people relate, not just young people, it's working its way into older people too. And so 
I'm always on watch for that in my house, not necessarily to oversee or to curtail, but just to see how it's playing out. We had some really young girls at the house. Some friends of ours were here and they spent three hours doing little dances and songs for TikTok. But the other things going on that are really challenging to your point about the complexity for young people today around rule setting and normative setting and being involved in organizations and leadership and otherwise social media is obviously going to be at the center of all of that. And I don't think we have figured that out yet, how to do it well. And hopefully they will. (laughs) Clint, I'm talking about the girls making up dances. When I was a kid, we made our parents buy tickets and come sit in the living room and watch our thing. (laughs) (laughs) Just the closest we got to an audience. Now they're reaching millions and millions with one dance. (laughs) I love it. All right. Let me go as promised so the audience can hear a little bit more about the specific work you do because it's super interesting. So if you would tell us a little about the where the Stupski Foundation came from, I'll also tell you folks that as Glenn talks about where it came from, also where it's going in philanthropy, many of you may know there's a term called spin down, which means rather than planning that corpus that money that is being spent is going to last in perpetuity and you spend around the margins of it. Stupski is planning to spend it all down, give it all away. So I'd love to hear a little bit about all that, a little bit, the focus of your work. No problem. And thank you. So we, yes, that's usually how we start. We're a spend down. We are officially closing our doors in 2029. That date was set because in 2019, we had a sense of what strategies we wanted to employ. It would, we wanted to give ourselves 10 years. Mm-hmm. The reality is we'll end up moving the capital much sooner than that. But we're not talking so publicly about that right now because we don't know when the date will be. It's we public, do, Lynn? It's public, <laughs> but I can't go much further than that without talking to our grantees first. Okay. And that is underway. We work in three regions. We work in Alameda County and San Francisco County, two of the regions in California. And then we work in Hawaii. You asked earlier, why do we work in Hawaii? Joyce and Larry Stupski spent half of their time in Hawaii. And to Joyce's credit and Larry's while he was alive, they both have passed now. And I work most closely with Joyce. Uh, They were very frustrated with the fact that so many people from the continental United States spend their time in Hawaii and live in Hawaii and do not give in Hawaii. In fact, we're one of the larger funders there and it's frustrating to think that. And there should be many more. Now I will say, as we do the work, I'm coming across foundations that don't broadcast their brand like we do for better or for worse. And they're there and they're working and, and it is happening. And so she was really intense about this and wanted to make sure we were talking about Hawaii and making sure it's part of our philanthropy. So that's why we're there. And we work in four, I would call them four filters. Ultimately, our vision is focused on a more, a society that is really built on solidarity and equity and justice. And we do tend to put a more of a racial lens on our work, some of a gender lens on our work. And we do that work through four other lenses, which are post-secondary success, which means we're really hoping to support kids of color through the collegiate system with the goal of them being able to 
engage and more options in their life than historically they've been allowed to do. In the other two areas are more health related. So we're very, we're focused on the early part of life, early brain development, parenting, and pediatrics. And then on the end of life, Joyce and Larry, Joyce, not so much. Larry had a really rough end to his life. Mm -hmm. And Joyce was really concerned about how people were treated at the end of life. Mm -hmm. So we've played roles in some very controversial work. We were very much supporters of and involved in the passage of physician aid and dying here in California and Hawaii. I don't think it's no coincidence that those two states have those laws in place and tremendously growing practices there. But we're also very deeply involved in the palliative care, mostly in our end of life work. And then finally, we Joyce initially wanted to make sure as a funder, which is very common, that people were fed while we did our work. Our view on that has shifted a lot from Joyce's days. And now we've moved from like a hunger program to more of a food justice lens, yeah. where we are really seeking to re return resources back to communities from where they've been taken or stolen and make sure that they have the ability to grow their own food. Uh, this is of critical importance in Hawaii, where Native Hawaiians have been really ravaged historically by colonial players. And it is also true in the Bay Area, that similar processes have happened with indigenous as well as people of color around the area. So we've been really energized by that work. I love it. Thanks, Glenn, for those, all those specifics. Folks on this, the audience and the guests, and hopefully the audience will continue to grow and people will be hearing terms they've never heard before. But a lot of us in the work in the sector know the phrase systems change mm -hmm. and I think in the food and food justice space, I think there are, it's such a great way to teach people what we mean by systems change. And I'm thinking about my daughter, for example, works for a great organization here in San Diego called the San Diego Food System Alliance and get her started. We're talking about seed banks. We're talking mm -hmm. about soil health. We're talking about fisheries. And when you talk, since we all have a connection to food, those of us urban societal supermarket shoppers can engage in the exercise of thinking, where did that come from? And then when we talk about system change in the food system, you can really, you can plot out back to the farmer, oh, even back to the soil and the seed, mm -hmm. up to climate, et cetera. So I love that framing. And I think that can be true in each kind of pillar of work that any of us is doing. And in food systems, it's really, it's very easy to visualize. Yeah, I think for us, at least I'll speak for myself, this isn't a, a, an official policy of Stubsky, but I do know many of us on staff share a common desire to see assets transfer from those who have held them in extraordinary ways mm -hmm. to those who've had it taken away. And I think in food justice, that's a driving factor. Yeah. It's a question of how do you get land assets back into the hands of people who haven't had it for some time. And the exciting piece is when they get it, they do really interesting things with it. Yeah. And so even the smallest amount of land that we can afford to support in acquisition gets used in ways that just are not in the way in some of these communities without ownership being in yeah. the hands of the community. So that's it. But it's the same across 
all of our work, no matter what we're doing, we're thinking about how are we transferring assets and how are people then able to use that to build their own? The disparities are so extreme by design. And I just don't know how long a society can withstand that and how long people can withstand that before deprivation levels get to a place where people take action. And I would hope that we'd ever get to that place. Yeah. Thank you. Agreed. I was thinking in, and you're, that's a somber, the word deprivation and levels of deprivation. Those are somber and important mm. thoughts. I was, <laughs> I don't want to feel tone deaf to ask a question that was next on my mind. I think it can still, it can still land here, which is, I think those who are in the fundraising business and are trying to attract resources to do the big work and maybe people more broadly think, God, it must be a lot of fun to give money away. And I wonder about the playfulness and the fun of that. And then what might those of us who haven't been as engaged in that as a main part of our work, what might we not know or not understand about what, what makes that work hard? That's a great question. And that's a major area that I like to focus on. I love the work at the foundation and we talk about these issues all the time. And I spend time in and outside the foundation also thinking about how we give. And the fact of the matter is, it is fun. It is a lot of fun. How could it not be fun? Here's how it cannot be fun. The sector has found ways to make it not fun. And it's almost like we spend our time constantly coming up with new ways to put restrictions on ourselves and the people with whom we're handing resources over to. Uh, the, and I take some credit for this. In my first 15 years of what has, it's over 20 years of work in the in philanthropy, I've played as much of a role as anyone in building this infrastructure and mindset around concepts like impact, mm -hmm. uh, diligence, return on investment, um, absorbative capacity. That's one of my favorites. All these concepts, it means it's you basically as a foundation when you're giving money to a grantee you're supposed to ask can they absorb it do they have the ability to absorb it and what's funny is for me it's just my I, when i have to look myself in the mirror sometimes i've been a grantee many times and i have never once thought with any grant that has ever been given to us gee i hope we can absorb it <laughs> only a foundation could think that and it, it tends to come out of the investment side of our world Anyway, we put all these restrictions on us and what it does is it slows down the transfer of resources. Mm -hmm. It puts stress on the team so that we feel like we're working harder. And it, and it typically is because we're accountable to not the communities with whom we work, but to boards made up of family members who still see the money as their own when in fact it's not. Foundation dollars are not anyone's personal dollars. They're charitable public dollars. We are accountable to the community, not a family. Yeah. Uh, make, that's making me think in a way that I maybe haven't put this word on it before. Those dollars have been diverted, right? Because they have a tax status, which allows them mm -hmm. to sit differently 
within the kind of the economic system diverted mm -hmm. from and held aside for the special treatment because they're going to be deployed for public good. Yes. Um, it's yeah. Interesting. They're not anyone's dollars. They're the people's dollars, mm -hmm. so to speak. We can get into all kinds of good conversations about that. I know I'm curious about the spin down. Has that put extra pressure or has that possibly made it a little bit more playful to, we just got to get this. Cause if you're folks, the 5% spin down, which is the only requirement the IRS makes on this, which is another soapbox that I have close by if needed is nominal, right? 95% of the dollars sitting there earning interest, having received tax status, tax preference status, 5% being spent for good. No. So you guys are getting, so is that what has that done or what is that doing to the pace of work and play at the foundation? It is the most exciting thing Joyce could have given to this group of people. I don't know. She and I spoke a lot about it. By the time I showed up on the scene, she had already very much made the decision that she was spending it all out. Not only that, but she also transferred all of her personal assets into the foundation upon her passing, as did Larry. So unlike, say, some of what you hear out there about the pledges, the giving pledge, mm -hmm. oftentimes with the giving pledge, this is no criticism of them. When someone says, I am pledging half of my wealth, they're pledging it to a private foundation that they will then govern and give 5% out of every year. Oh, I see. Joyce yeah. felt differently. She said they had already been in it for about 20 years or 17 years, something like that when I showed up and they were primarily an operating foundation. I won't go into that. It's a different world, but it is still a foundation. She decided to pivot it into a grant making foundation and move all the money. I have lots of ideas about why she chose to do that. In the end, it did, doesn't matter. She, once we were in a place where we had broken the cardinal rule, not law, there's no law that says you have to live forever. It is just a cardinal rule. What do they call it in science? In physics, there are these laws of thermodynamics that mm -hmm. cannot be changed. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have in philanthropy in the foundation sector. People just assume they should live forever. She chose not to. And once that happens, everything is on the table. Mm -hmm. Everything is on the table. And I don't think we pushed that hard enough in the earlier days mm -hmm. of earlier days would mean my first three or four out of seven years I've worked there. Now we're pushing it intensively all the time. Yeah. And one of the things that we do all the time is we ask the question, why is it more important for us to have these assets than the communities and the grantees with whom we work? What are we doing with it? That's so much better than what they could do with it. Yeah. Turns out in most cases, the reason foundations hold on is because they want to grow the capital and they believe they can grow it better than anyone. And that means that they are investing it in investments that will grow beyond 5% annually. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but when you look at the companies out there that can pull in that kind of regular return, yeah. you're probably not in philanthropy anymore. Right. So we, we challenge ourselves all the time. We're fully divesting out of everything. I don't believe the foundation should be in anything for profit. So I'm sorry to my impact investing friends. That'll be a controversial statement. Um, I just, until that sector figures it out, I'm not willing to put our money there. And then, and then so many other things. We're just 
moving the capital out. It is so much fun to actually give the money away. So much more fun than trying to hold on to a small chunk and grow the rest. Yeah. I'm having the really great experience right now where I'm working with a group of funders in New York who are pooling their dollars to support broadly entrepreneurs of color in the five boroughs. And I am, as I mentioned earlier, I am a fan of and an audience for critiques of philanthropy and promises of doing it better. And have even found myself as we're figuring out like what's going to be in the RFP, right? What are we going to put in the reporting um, mm -hmm. with this first cohort of grantees? And yesterday we were just talking about what if they recorded on their phone a few thoughts about how the grant is going and just sent that hmm. to us in a text. What about great. that idea? So great. we're considering that. I think we're probably going to go for it. And uh, on the plus side too, nobody has to read a bunch of long stuff. And then similarly, someone's saying well, they should just tell them just they can write it really short. I'm like, well, sometimes writing short is harder than writing long. So mm -hmm, if they want to mm -hmm. send us three pages, not 250 characters, let's let that be okay too. And it's, I think we forget sometimes what we think is standard, right? And needs to be adhered to. And what is all, these are all just constructs, many of which are systemically biased by definition. Yep. Okay. Yes. They are all constructs. All that is 100% true. So now we're going to eat some ice cream folks. Right on. And, um, I want to, one segue I had, you were talking about Joyce and I think I read on the website or in some chronicle about her, she was a fan of cookies and junk food. That was like <laughs> something she was known for. Can you tell me about that as we get out our ice cream? Um, that's interesting. You bring that up. She, she definitely, she was a, a, a fan of great food and, and yes, there was always a great dessert associated with it. And it often was cookies. We, she was also, which I don't think is on the website and I don't think any of the food team would be happy to hear this, but she loved Cheetos too. And we had <laughs> always had a stash at the foundation in the early days when I, for me again, seven years ago, she was in there in the office about every week mm. and we loved having her there. She was always very positive and optimistic and joyful. And, um, and she would walk around for a little while and then her assistant would sashay up very quietly and hand the bag of Cheetos to her. <laughs> uh, so she, she loved those too. I don't think that's on the website. That is so funny. That is a new piece of info. All right. The ice cream that Glenn and I are eating is actually comes from Oakland. He turned Playful Podcast onto this brand. And this, I think is the third episode where I've been eating Kube, which <laughs> is, and Glenn suggested key lime. Yeah. And I'm a chocolate girl. So I'm excited to have mm -hmm. a different experience. I'm going to read to you from the package. Kube is a black woman owned vegan artisanal full fat. I love that full fat. They'll just say it. Coconut <laughs> cream, frozen dessert manufacturer. I think on their website, it says woman facturer. They put the W O in front of the word M A N and manufacturer locally produced coconut cream. Okay. No artificial colors, et cetera, et cetera. So do you, now I know somebody on your team knows them. Is that right? She knows someone who knows them. Okay. And as a result, they've, I think she now knows them. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, Thanks to, you. Thanks to you. And, and it's awesome. That's really good. I've got, I bought five or six. I think you did too. Mm -hmm. did. And the flavors, it's completely undetectable whether you're, what you're eating. Totally. You know, it's ice cream as far as I'm concerned. 
Okay, we going for it? It's done. It's really good. Ooh. I think now, what I, I, love, even... Go what ahead. I love about the uh, this segment of your show is this, I believe, is a segment called... What's the scoop Very on cool. how I came to care? <laughs> so please tell us a little bit. And now, as I mentioned, you're, you and I grew up blocks from each other, unbeknownst. Yeah. Tell me about your impact origin story. What's the scoop <laughs> on that? That is... It's funny, you go to, you're in convenings and things and people ask, hey, what brought you to this? So for me as a kid, I think back to something in particular, I can, I always trace back to having this visceral, guttural, guttural reaction. Back in the day before Geraldo Rivera lost his mind, he was a young journalist. I think he was with 2020. And he was really willing to go into tough situations. This is before he opened the vault and nothing was there and all that. This is a few years early on. And he did a whole segment on the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm. It all clearly, it never went away, but they've shown up in different points. And he really took them on in a story. And I remember feeling this sense of just deep injustice, what I was mm. seeing and that this was wrong. And yeah. I was probably like eight or nine. I remember my mother coming into the room and I was really upset and she's like, what's going on with you? You're just watching TV. Mm. And that is my first memory of really feeling that value of justice being very strong. Now I can't say like I spent my life seeking justice as a goal, but it's, so much of what's drawn me in over the years mm -hmm. continues to stay close to that line, even when I've been off the line a little bit. By that, I mean, if you, if the foundation justice was not a driving value for Joyce and Larry, although I didn't know Larry, but from everyone I know, it was really important to him. Other values were also very important, and they were a big part of how we started out as a grant making foundation. In the last few years, I have myself and many on staff have wanted to drive more closely to that concept of justice and how a foundation can play a role and how foundations play a barrier to justice as well. So how do you break open both of those things? So every day that we are working within a justice frame is extremely invigorating for me yeah, yeah. and personally, and certainly working with a group of people who share that mindset, not just in the foundation, but a lot of our peers and partners, foundations that are really making, doing new and innovative things. And by innovative, the interesting thing about innovation in the foundation world, I think, is not the new labels we put on things like social entrepreneurship or strategic philanthropy. I actually find that stuff to be, can be very much a barrier to innovation. Where I'm seeing innovation are just those players that are breaking down the power dynamics and finding ways to partner with community in ways that make these public dollars truly public. Right. That I see is really innovative, which is upside down on what people think about when it comes to innovation. I know you spent, you mentioned to me, you spent a little time in talk radio. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was a vocation or an avocation when you did that. And I'm curious, professionally, did you have any period of time where you weren't working in the change sector and what brought you to it, if that's the case? 
So this was an interesting one. At the time I was getting my PhD at the University of Colorado, I was never an academic at my core. And I was always getting in trouble with department for leaving academics and going and doing something else. In fact, one of my advisor, when I said I was taking a talk radio job, he fired me, basically. He dumped me and he sent me over to another advisor. <laughs> academics are interesting. So I went in to... I. I was, I put in an application to become, uh, to a local talk station. It's a small little station and they totally blew me off, but somebody else bought them and found my resume in the file cabinet. <laughs> and to make matters even weirder, the guy who found it, his name was Will Rogers and he worked for the brand new working assets, broadcasting, working assets. Working assets. Yeah, of course you did. Yes. Working Assets was saw an opportunity in online radio and decided to use it for their long distance. They were a long distance company. Yes, they were They're, my provider. There you go. And they oh, eventually became Credo Mobile. But before they were Credo Mobile, they had this idea that they were famous for, and I was a member of Working Assets because they had activists billing. So it meant that you'd get a bill. You probably remember this. You'd get yes. a bill. And what would be in the bill? What would you find in there? As I recall, you could either check off or there was mm -hmm. information about, oh, there was a brochure that had information about different nonprofit organizations that they were supporting. And they were on the activist side. They weren't. Oh, for sure. Yeah. They weren't just whatever state organizations. I have not thought about that in so long. Yeah. And they had real, so yes, you as a, you, they returned, they're one of the first to do this. They returned their profits to organizations that were voted on by the customers. That's right. Yep. Really cool. And as a staff member, I actually got to play a part in that. And then the other piece was they had calls to action on all their bills. Yep. And these were serious issues. They weren't calls to action to recycle. They were calls to action to take on, to to speak to your senator about yeah, I was say, there was letter writing prompts things letter, like yeah. that yep yeah it was awesome so they had this idea that they would do it on the air and they would be immediately scaled because of the power of the internet back in 1999 do you remember what the internet sounded like on radio yeah, 99 it was, very, my, it was that fuzzy part my dad used to call me and he'd say i heard your show today <laughs> there is i heard you and he said it sound like this i heard you say it so that that's why it didn't work out. But we did have a broadcast signal in the 26 market, Boulder, Denver, and it was a terrific time. And we were very progressive. And a couple of our hosts, I had enough after two years of radio. It, it really scared me the work because you had to really move around a lot if you were going to stay in the business. And we didn't want to do that. But a couple of the hosts did go on to Air America, oh, which became a big national signal for a while. And Al Franken was on it. And Rachel Maddow started there. Was Roger and Moore involved with that? Could have been. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, so it was an incredible experience. I loved it. And I loved the ability to be blending together politics with organizing and, and not be a standard public radio sound. We were really trying to compete. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and that, talk about stress being in the line of work you were in yeah, yeah. one book comes out and you see all your friends on the driveway <laughs> with their pink slips. And it was a challenging time yeah, for sure. Yeah. Any of us, right. Looking back, it all makes, you can see this 
led to this, but when you're at the early part of your career, as some of the audience mm-hmm. members might be, you don't know which bread come, which, which breadcrumbs are coming that are going to make yep. the course of your, make your story in the course of your life. I love that the itch to do some radio ended up, there's a through line between that and us being here right now today. Oh, and hey, look at us. We're actually on broadcast. <laughs> yeah. How about that? Yeah, there there is in the sense, yes, because I had the great privilege because the Democratic Party did not have anyone on AM radio that would interview them. But that was the rise of the time of Rush Limbaugh. Yep. Sean Hannity was an unknown player, but he was out there. Many others, all right wing. Yeah. So yeah. to have a left wing AM talk show host, yeah. Yeah. I used to get everybody and yeah. they're not they were not famous then. Bernie Sanders was on the show all the time. Nancy Pelosi, because Working Assets was based out of San Francisco, she was on all the time. But no one knew them then. They were just regular Congress people. I think Bernie had just become congressman. Oh, my. And he wasn't even senator yet. Yeah. And that helped me when I got a job with the World Affairs Council out here in San Francisco. And it went from there. I love it. Love. So tell me a little bit about play in your own life. What do you do for fun? There's a great Brene Brown quote slash suggestion that to make sure we have things we do for no reason. When I first heard that, I couldn't think of anything that I didn't, didn't have some sort of reason I did it. So I added a few things. I added bird watching and poetry, (laughs) which the reason turns out it's, it's pleasurable and that's enough Mm -hmm. reason wonder if you've got anything that comes to mind when I ask you about that. I definitely love music. I, for a long time, played drums in bands, but I decided to shift over to guitar a little while back. And I, I still think I'm a better drummer than a guitarist. Mm-hmm. I haven't gotten there yet. I really do. And en- I do enjoy it a lot. My, one of my favorite musicians in the world is Dave Grohl because he made that transition from behind the dr- set to the front. Yeah. Huge part of, of fun and play for me. Um, we had, a, I had a really fun time during COVID. I hate to say that I know many people did not, but we had a good time because my son really got into Pokemon go the, uh, mm-hmm the online, the phone game. And he and I really connected on that. He he said, you got to do this with me. It'll be fun. He was like 12 years old and we were doing that. And for a while that was fun. That took up my time. Of course you get obsessed with these games. And so I had to, I had to cut the cord, but that was fun too. And then finally we love going to music. And so we end up going a lot of festivals and that's just starting up now. Coachella, it, it goes at this time of the, at, at this yeah. time of the year, I don't know how we're handling recording, but there are lots of festivals that come up throughout the summer and we'll, we'll be going to a number of them. Love it. What about play at work overtly or with an agenda retreats or activities with the team to you know, shake things up? It sounds like you live in a vibe of shaking things up, but do you do things with the team to spark creative thinking by by playing in different ways. So that has never been my strong suit. And I'm so grateful for all the people on staff that make sure it happens. There are many of them who like, for example, we have a weekly staff meeting. I think it's become one of my favorite hours of the week because it, the facilitator rotates every week. Um, we have a DJ 
everybody plays DJ at some point and they kick us out with music for every meeting and it's at rotates. Yeah. Yep. And we have a note taker too, who is not responsible for fun. They're just responsible to note take. I don't think that's probably fun for anyone that has to take the notes, but it does create that just alone. If everybody comes in to staff meetings and they're really, it's just that everybody knows they're going to play their part. It's really fun. Usually some really thoughtful, we're all doing this now more than ever, questions to kind of warm up. Um, and it's it's great. But beyond that, the, the, our director of grant making practice is a is an artist in her, as, I think that's her main vocation. And she's brought so much of that creativity to how we engage in grant making. Our communications director is always coming up with new and fun ways to appreciate each other and the sector. We're always having fun, happy hours that are usually thematic and are tied to some kind of learning as well and so on. It's been, it's great. It's a really interesting environment because there's a tremendous amount of laughter and we know we're, we really feel strongly that we're contributing in a positive way. Yeah. I love it. And I wrote a, a, I have a newsletter on LinkedIn called Delightful. And I wrote something the other day about you got to be, you can't just like bolt play onto a toxic culture or a toxic meeting. Right. And because we all know what that feels like. That is lame. And it makes the normal state even more obviously toxic because you're trying, you're, it feels like they're, look how fun we're, how fun we can be. Ooh, there's our bell. Oh boy. And it sounds like the playfulness of that meeting fits into the broader playfulness of the organization. So it's a, it's of a piece and that's probably why it, you relish it. Right. For sure. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, yeah. I think you, you definitely have your serious times in this work. Yeah. Yeah. You're dealing with topics that can be very heavy. You carry, I think, despite, Regardless of all the restrictions, barriers, and mindsets we've tried to tear down in the organization, you still feel enormous responsibility. You can't, and the responsibility is to the opportunity. It's yeah. that's the way I look at it. It's at the end of the day, will we have taken full advantage of this opportunity? And that can weigh you down because you, A, we're never going to know, and B, You may, your standards of that can shift from time to time, but you really feel like this is such a unique opportunity. We have got to deliver on this. And you then have to take a deep breath and know that these problems we deal with just in San Francisco alone are multi-trillion in solution cost. Our contribution to that is limited, but it's the contribution that matters. And how you contribute and how you bring that contribution to the table and how you make sure that you're not holding back things that could be contributed for other reasons, like making sure my family learns philanthropy together, or this is a great way for me to give back to society, but really understand that the contribution is to help in every way possible, those who have been intentionally marginalized. and. Uh, and while that is heavy, 
it's also incredibly energizing and exciting. And I go to bed every night feeling tremendous about what we do every day and what, and the people I get to be with who just will do anything to help others. It's a tremendous feeling. I really know what you mean by that. I tell people often, I just hang out with people who care. That's my whole yeah. <laughs> world is full of that. And no right. wonder I'm in a good mood. <laughs> yeah, like you have sure. So as our last bit here, I'd love you. It feels like a great follow from what you just said. Is there anything the audience can do, should check out, or ways that we can contribute to the work you're doing, our issues that you all care about? Oh, that's a great question. I should have thought about that in advance. I'm sure. I'll eat ice cream while you think about it. There will be people on my team who will say, what about this? I think that my my general message is that I'm learning myself as I write and continue to post and publish that so much of what we do in philanthropy is tied to the financial sector. It is why you have so much philanthropy in the United States is either because of the strong religious traditions that exist in the country or because of the tax system that incentivizes that giving. And, and so from my perspective, I think what everyone can do is to remind themselves as much as they can to put philanthropy first in what they do and not finance first. So many foundations, which I know not everybody has, are in dire need of paying close attention to what the smallest donors do. The smallest donors do not get a tax incentive. The smallest donors are giving a high percentage of their assets relative to the wealthiest donor. And for the most part, and I know this will be controversial, I know very few donors that started a foundation for philanthropy first. Mm -hmm. They started it because their estate planner, their tax advisor, or their investment advisor said, you can shelter away more money if you create a foundation. And then they discover philanthropy. Yeah. And that mindset has been a massive part of why we have all the barriers we do in the sector. So for everyone out there that has the means to have a foundation, that has the means to have a donor advised fund, or that has the wealth that they will receive significant tax benefit for giving, do everything you can to shift your mindset to philanthropy first. And when you do that, you're going to find that you're going to give more and you're going to give more for others and not only for yourself. Spoon drop. <laughs> <laughs> Spoon drop. Here you go. There it is. Glenn, thank you so much. All right, folks, check out Glenn. He publishes a lot on LinkedIn and we will put on the episode description links to things that he wants to call our attention to. And thank you for this time. It was fantastic. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. And I really hope for the best for this podcast. I really appreciate all you're trying to do to bring joy and play into an area, a part of the world that needs it so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Glenn. Bye-bye. Bye. Stay tuned for Double Scoop, two delicious insights from today's episode. Hey, everybody, double scoop for this fantastic conversation we wrapped up just now with Glenn Gallich from the Stupski Foundation. 
And I'll say one overarching theme with two parts that I want to, I really want to double click on, as they say, or double scoop on. And broadly, he was talking about his experience leading the Spin Down Foundation and knowing the founders who were the wealth generators who have then decided in their passing to give all the money away, all the assets, and have a Spin Down Foundation. So when he was reflecting on that, on that, he talked about a problem he sees in the philanthropic sector, which is that people holding the money before it's given away, tending to think of it as their money. And he said, it's, it's not. It is the people's money. And if it has been designated for charitable use, that's when that happens. Once that's done and that's been designated as such, it's meant to be deployed. And he said, it's so much more fun, he said, to give the money away than to be giving all of it, than to be giving a little bit of it away and trying to invest the rest to make more, to be able to give more away. And when he spoke about the question that he and his staff ask each other all the time, they have to ask each other, he said, is what could we do with this money better than the communities who are waiting for it? And he suggested that they answer to themselves, really not. We can't do anything better than they could do with it. Let's get it out to them as soon as possible. So there's two scoops that came from this great conversation, which also included everything from Ted Lasso to TikTok to Cheetos. So I hope you enjoyed. And as always, thanks for being a part of the Playful family. Thank you for listening to the Playful Podcast with Christine Mitchie. If you want to stay playful as you tackle the world's problems and get all the scoop on today's tastiest ice cream, click to follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can learn more about Christine on LinkedIn and her work with changemakers worldwide at impactfulinc.com. That's impactful with two L's, I-N-C.com.